JJ McCullough is a cartoonist, writer, journalist, YouTuber, and a guy who talks about countries, culture, and Canada. He created his YouTube channel way back in 2006, and some 300 videos later, JJ has built an audience of over 370,000 subscribers with over 70 million video views. With his passionate commentary, which encompasses a wide range of topics, from flags to anthems, world leaders to the Simpsons, recycling, politics, propaganda, and of course, a healthy selection of content about Canada, the country that he and I call home. His videos are driven by a mantra of living life with the right mix of skepticism and gratitude and not taking things too seriously. So friends, let's bring the left and right together to make a clapping sound and welcome to the podcast, JJ McCullough. Oh, thanks so much for having me. What a what a flattering introduction. <laughs> yeah, we take those introductions very seriously. Yeah. So, okay, Chad mentioned you started your channel in 2006, and I know we always like to account for the missing years yes. because you started your first video, and I always like looking at the first video of a channel because it tells a lot about that person. Your very first video was a reaction video to Five Nights at Freddy's. And, and I thought, this is such a time capsule because not only has nothing to do with what you're doing now, but it's Five Nights at Freddy's. Yes, yes, <laughs> you know? yes, yes. No, I've, I've, I've come a long way. Uh, you know, so yeah, I didn't have a channel in, in 2006. I mean, I created a YouTube account at that time in order to watch videos or comment. Right. I experimented with uploading some sort of silly things, but you know, I, I started making my channel in, in 2015. And sort of the, the genesis of it, that Five Nights at Freddy's video was like strictly a kind of experiment. Like I did not think I was going to be <laughs> a, you know, a reaction shock horror video game guy. I just wanted to do something as my test video, and actually, the uh, the, the the young woman who was in that video with me, my friend Angela, she uh, knew how to use uh, Premiere, and uh, I wanted to sort of learn from her. So I was like, "Hey, why don't you teach me through us making a video together?" And it's like, "Well, what can we make a video about?" And it's like, "Oh, Five Nights at Freddy's. That's a hot thing. Let's watch. The, let's do some reactions together, and then you can show me how editing works." And that's on and so forth and so that was kind of the uh the reason why my first video is such a bizarre uh so discordant with what i would later go on to produce which as you sort of said is is mostly uh, stuff relating to the different countries of the world and sort of somewhat political topics and so on but were there uh, any youtubers who were doing what you wanted to do at that time was there anybody who was influencing you um, not so much. So I, I suppose I should sort of like, I'll tell you sort of like the genesis of, of the channel. So it's like, um, as I get older, I sort of become more aware of, of the degree to which my sort of career has been built on the back of a lot of sort of increasingly dead or dying media. So like way back in the day, uh, I started out, I started out as a, as a blogger. Remember when bloggers were a thing? So like, I was like, a, I don't I was, remember that. No, <laughs> this was, this was a thing where people used to type on the internet and we had like websites that weren't moving. And yeah, it was a very archaic uh, sort of form of media. But you know, I was I was a blogger, and so I wrote sort of my political hot takes and this sort of thing. And I, I did cartoons. You mentioned that I was a cartoonist. That was sort of something that I was big into. I used to think I was going to be an editorial cartoonist. That was going to be my profession. That that's an art form to bet on that has a clear future. Uh, so <laughs> I had a blog, and then sort of through my blog, it became sort of successful. And then I got hired by the Huffington Post Canada, and I worked for them for a while, and I, I wrote sort of political hot takes there. And then through my success at, at HuffPo Canada, 
I got picked up to work on television. And so I was one of these TV pundits that are, again, are, are sort of much maligned today. But that was at one time, like that was my sign that I'd really sort of made it. I was a guy on television. I would do these sort of political panels and they'd be like, oh, JJ, the prime minister's poll numbers are going down. What does this mean for his reelection chances? Well, Todd, you know, one of those types. And uh, and that that was fun. Like, like I said, like that was, to young JJ, who sort of had aspirations of being a kind of opinion journalist, that really sort of made me feel like I had really made it, that I was on television. I worked for, for CTV here in Canada. I did a lot of what we call hits in the business for a whole bunch of different networks. I was on the radio all the time. And then I kind of got a sort of semi-permanent position working for uh, Sun News, which was this sort of uh, conservative kind of Fox News-esque sort of network that we had up here. And... Um, it did not last. That network is, uh, for any Canadians listening will know that this was sort of one of the great infamous flops in, uh, in Canadian uh, television journalism. So after working there just for a couple of years, uh, the network just one day went uh, dark overnight. Like literally we got an email at like 3 a.m. from the management. It's like, ah, oh, you know, that network's not working out. Uh, make sure you take all your stuff out of the office by <laughs> noon tomorrow because we're changing the locks. So it was just like, you know, one day you had this kind of career where you're on television every day doing doing political commentary. The next day you're suddenly out of work and just uh, kind of feeling with your hat in your hand, so to speak. And uh, so I was uh, used to being on television. I was used to sort of blabbing to the world. I was, you know, had grown vain and entitled in the way that TV people often are. And I was like, you know, I, I the, the world needs to hear more JJ. And even though I've sort of lost my dominant medium, I'm going to find a new one. And then I sort of said, uh, you know, like, oh, this YouTube thing thing. The kids seem to be into that. I bet I could be a YouTuber. So I went to the old Best Buy and I, you know, bought a handheld sort of camcorder and a crude little tripod. And like I said, I made that Five Nights at Freddy's video to, to test it out and to learn how to do editing. And then I just tried doing a bunch of different videos on a bunch of different topics until I kind of got my groove. And I've been doing that for about uh, six years, I think it's getting to now, because I started in 2015 and I've been doing it almost every single week for the last, yeah, I guess getting close to six years. You also have a weekly column for the Washington Post. Does mm -hmm. that uh, influence what you're going to be talking about on your videos or are those two completely separate things? Uh, yeah, they are. I think they are broadly separate. And I suppose this is this is a sort of point I should emphasize as well when I'm telling my origin story is that even though I have a background in like political commentary and that's sort of what I was trained to do and that's sort of been my dominant profession for most of my adult life, I decided very early on that I did not want to be a political commentator YouTube guy. And so I still have very strong feelings about politics and uh, I like to articulate them, but I'm lucky enough that I got hired uh, to work at the Washington Post some years ago and I write a weekly column about Canadian politics. I work for what's called the Global Opinion section. So the way I describe it is I write about Canadian politics for an international audience, so I sort of have you know, takes on what's going on in the Canadian scene, but I try to write it in a way that's sort of more broadly accessible. But the point is, is that having that outlet, I can sort of get out all of my energy on politics there, and I feel less of a need to do it on YouTube. Uh, also because I just feel like YouTube has more than enough sort of political cranks and crackpots, and I don't feel like that's a sort of void that needs to be filled. There's plenty of people doing political stuff. And, and actually, frankly, as I get older, my, my own thoughts on political commentary are starting to become a bit more nuanced and I start to become, you know, a little bit more 
critical of just this whole idea of sort of the talking head pundit as even being that inherently useful as, as a sort of contributor to our uh, democratic culture and, and whatnot. But yeah, I mean, with my YouTube channel, I, I tried to create an image of somebody who is, you know, moderate and, and neutral and accessible. And like, I really indulge that side of myself. Whereas with my, with my, um, with my post column, you know, I, I try to create more of an image of somebody who is, you know, partisan and opinionated and has divisive sort of takes on, on, you know, contentious political topics and politicians. Those are two different sides of my personality. And, and to be honest, I, I'm kind of proud that I've been able to sort of, you know, separate those two and, and keep these two realms relatively independent. And a lot of people that watch my YouTube uh, videos have no idea that I do this column or are completely disinterested in it. And likewise, in the other direction, a lot of people that know me for my columns don't really know or care about my YouTube channel. How long before you actually knew that the YouTube channel had some traction and this is something that you should really be putting? So did you have a video that kind of popped or was there a particular subject which did well? Or was uh, it just a, putting, putting in work and then over time before you knew it, you were building an audience? It's, it's, a, it's, a, good, it's a good question because, and it, it sounds kind of dumb when I say it like this, but honestly, in the early days, like I just was not paying that close of attention to the metrics and stuff. Because I guess it was like, you know, I'm, I'm 37, so like I, I grew up at a time when like YouTube was not a big thing, right? And I think that frankly, a lot of people sort of of our generation, I think we're all sort of broadly in the same bucket as far as that goes, like there was often a somewhat even condescending attitude towards YouTube, where like YouTube was kind of silly and frivolous and dumb. And I actually remember that there was an Onion headline some years ago, like in the early 2000s, where it's like, like YouTube management challenges users, can you make a good video, right? Like that was like, <laughs> you know, that was that was like the attitude at one time. And so as a result, I feel like I was I just didn't really understand really seriously what YouTube success was like. I was doing this more to to make content for the audience of like my blog or people that had known me from television or from Twitter and that kind of thing. And and like I said, it's it sounds fake to sort of say it this way, but like I can't even remember like I can't remember how successful or unsuccessful my earlier videos were. I can't remember it's sort of like when I had a big hit or what that would have been. You know, when I look back at my most successful videos, some of them are quite old. Uh, you know, I think my national anthem one was like, it was my first video that got over a million, but I don't really remember exactly when that happened or I don't remember how popular that video was at the time. Now, of course, I'm super up to date with all this kind of stuff and I know when a video is successful or not, but I feel like it's really only been in the last maybe sort of two or three years that I've really started to sort of like think of myself. I am primarily a YouTuber. This is increasingly like my dominant profession. I've sort of shifted into this realm away from the sort of pretense of opinion journalism, which was previously how I sort of defined a lot of my identity. Is that how you introduce yourself now? Or like when people are like, what do you do? You're like, I'm a YouTuber and yeah, some other yeah, yeah. stuff, but I'm a YouTuber primarily. Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose it depends somewhat on, on the audience that you're talking to, right? Yes. Because, you know, if I talk to younger people, I can say I'm a YouTuber and they immediately grasp the significance of that. If I'm talking to older people, I can say I'm a columnist at the Washington Post and they right. grasp the significance of that. But there is often a little bit of uh, confusion because you tell them... The secret is to have several things depending on the audience to tell them and make, <laughs> make it resonate for them. Well, yeah, it's, it's like, you know... Older, I'm sure you guys have this experience all the time, right? Like you talk to, to older people or even, you know, people in our sort of realm and uh, it's like, YouTube, oh, can you make money doing that? Yeah, like, that's uh, always the first know. question. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
I say it's a production company when I'm talking to people who don't know YouTube. Yes. It's like, we do a production company, we produce videos. Oh, that's interesting. But if it's a young person, it's like, oh, it's a YouTube channel. Yes, yes. No, it's, it's, it's remarkable. Like, it's, it's, such a, it's such a cultural transformation that this is now the dominant medium for for a, a certain generation sort of below us, right? Like, it's, it's wild. You look at the, uh, you know, when you're at the, uh, the drugstore or whatever, and you look at, like, the cover of those teen magazines, you know, oh, who's the latest heartthrob? And it's all, like, these weird, like, YouTube people that, like, I've yeah. never heard of before. Yep. But that's, that's how the youth of today consume media, right? You have an interesting perspective from somebody unlike we've had before, where you have experienced old media and new media but the old media you've done both television and printed material and blogs you've kind of done it all do you think that all of that kind of media is just eventually just going to die out well it's funny i remember i was once at a sort of journalism conference back in the day and the guy sort of was talking about the future of journalism and he sort of said like you know the three the three rules is that nobody wants to read what they can listen to and no one wants to listen to what they can watch and i do think that you kind of do see that trend when you look at media like establishment sort of media outlets they are all pushing video increasingly in a way that they used to you know and if, at first they were pushing bloggers it's like okay we can have like our websites will be constantly updating we'll have sort of running commentary constantly refreshing and then that was sort of like the hot thing for a time and then it was like okay we'll all do podcasts we'll all do audio content you know we'll have the articles written to you and so on and so forth and now i think what you're sort of seeing and particularly with sort of with new startup media the assumption right off the bat, you know, Vox or something like that. It's like, okay, we got to have like video content. It has to be video based. We have to have, you know, we're either on YouTube or we have some sort of proprietary sort of video system in, on our own website. But it's true. And I mean, like, I don't necessarily see this as like the decline and fall of journalism, because I think that there's when you look at YouTube uh, itself, you see tremendous sort of investigative journalism, uh, investigative reporting, investigative commentary that's done through the medium and is able to tell a story with a kind of richness that you couldn't do strictly in print or strictly through audio. And, uh, you know, there's obviously there's a lot of schlock that's being uh, put up there in the, in that sort of has a pseudo a journalistic pretense, but is clearly not. But there's also a lot of really good stuff. So I, I, I think that this is a sort of exciting age. And I mean, this is part of the reason why I do what I do, is that I feel like I want to make use of this medium. I want to sort of use it to kind of be somewhat entrepreneurial, somewhat, you know, pioneering, sort of help steer the course of like what uh, the sort of topics that I'm interested in, how those can be fully explored using the, the medium of YouTube, using the medium of video. And also, you know, I think model some sort of responsibility to the, the younger people that are consuming it as well. Like you want to sort of show people that it is possible to use this medium, not just for sort of frivolous entertainment, but also for substantial or thoughtful conversations and discussions and discourses and, you know, analysis of, of, of heady uh, matters that, that matter to people. And now YouTube is the number one job aspiration for kids that are polled, which is pretty amazing. And I think about when I started posting videos, there were people who are posting videos on YouTube now who weren't even born when I was posting videos. They were 13 years old and they're making videos. It's just crazy. So they've just grown up with this. And a lot of this is generational because I look, I haven't watched a TV newscast in really years. It's just not something I do that is so kind of out of my realm of existence. But I was visiting my dad a couple of years ago and he had the news on. Yes. And it's been a long time since I'd seen it. And I was just kind of 
taken aback by how just sensationalistic it was. And it was just all about these visuals. Here's a fire. Here's an explosion. Here's all this stuff happening that wasn't really news. It was just more things that happened that looked cool on video. Yes, 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 yes. And that's and like you you see this like this is how the press or the sort of like the standard mainstream press is sort of in a bit of a desperate state, right? Like they need to sort of keep people engaged at a time when their audience is drifting away to these newer, flashier, I mean, we shouldn't even say, I sound like such an old man sort of using these, <laughs> all this new, this newfangled internet that all the kids are on now. No, but it's, it's, it's true. Like there is a lot, and I know this, like having been in newsrooms and stuff, there is a lot of anxiety about people moving to the new medium and that if you work in television and I'm, you know, my story, like someday when I'm an actual, like really old man, it'll be a good story because I can say that I worked for a television, a news station, and at a time when everybody at the news station knew that this was not a business model to bet on. Like television news, and this is why Sun News, the, the network I worked for in Canada, was like looking back at it in retrospect, like it was just the completely wrong decision at the wrong time. Like Canada did not need a new television news station. There was no way that this was going to be a, a sustainable business model. The amount of money you have to put up up front in order to sort of prop it up and keep people engaged. And, you know, you have a very old audience as a result. And that audience is, you know, sort of fading in various ways. But uh, no, you, you, if you're interested in, in these sorts of things, if you're interested in, in having conversations about public affairs and public policy and that kind of stuff, I think you have to, you know, kind of get with the times and have to have strategies for dealing with, uh, with YouTube. And you see a lot of these people who were very stubborn and very in denial about this kind of thing in, in establishment newsrooms and are still often in denial. They still feel that they can make it work just with their website or just with their podcast or, and just don't have a, a video or a, a a video strategy and if they do it's often like very you know half-assed you know they just kind of like throw their podcast onto their youtube channel you know with no visuals or no added benefit or anything like that or they just upload the nightly news broadcast onto the onto the youtube channel or things like that no it requires a bit more a bit more creativity than that I think it's important to note anybody listening to this that isn't familiar with your content is that up to this point, we're making it sound like you have a political commentary channel <laughs> yeah, to some extent, true. but it's really not. You, you touch on politics, but from a very centrist point, at least in my mind, it's a centrist point of view. I think Chad might give me a little bit of argument about this because we were talking about it and he, he was saying, oh, yeah, he's he's a conservative. And I'm like, whoa, I don't I don't see that at all. And he said, well, there's a difference between. Canadian conservatives and American conservatives. And I'm like, no, I think well, that uh, JJ seems to me very centrist. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think that, I mean, I, I don't really think that there's that much difference between Canadian conservatives and American conservatives as a sort of temperament or as an ideology. I think that you can argue that the politicians perhaps present differently because, you know, the country is different and the electorate is different. But I think that, you know, when you if you spent time, like if you had a sort of stereotypical Republican voter and a stereotypical conservative voter, you know, you put them in a room together, they'd agree on far more than they would disagree with. Because, you know, politics of left and right, it's, it's primarily, I think, driven by disposition and driven by personality more than than uh, any sort of fixed sort of set of, of public policies. And that being said, I do sort of feel like one of the reasons why I identified as a conservative when I was a younger person was because of a certain disposition that I understood myself to have. And a disposition I still think I have, which is, you know, cautious and pragmatic and, you know, hesitant about radical change, hesitant certainly about sort of radical kind of left-wing uh, rhetoric and so on and so forth. But 
definitely these days, I, I, uh, I feel like I'm getting a little bit more alienated from what is being offered as conservatism, which I think is, you know, I don't want to get sort of too political on your channel because that's not what this is all about. But definitely I think that the understanding of what that uh, ideology means has changed somewhat. And even though I still feel like my own disposition is the same as it has always been, in some ways, like, I, I want to use that disposition towards different ends rather than sort of pushing for, you know, explicitly conservative political politicians or goals or whatnot, which I might be increasingly alienated from. I instead just kind of want to offer a channel that is in some ways like it's not explicitly uh, conservative. It's not explicitly left. It's just kind of moderate in a kind of conservative temperamental way. Like it's 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 hopefully thoughtful. It's hopefully sort of somewhat pragmatic. It's hopefully somewhat fair and and balanced. These are sort of what I think of as being sort of classical conservative virtues in a sort of small C sense, rather than kind of capital C partisan, you know, conservative Donald party or, Rep right. yeah, or, or Republican Party, conservative yeah. party, like that kind of conservatism. So, I mean, if, if, but that said, like, I don't want to get too on my high horse here. If I'm I do consider myself a relatively partisan conservative in the context of Canadian politics. If people want to read my Washington Post column. They can hear what I think about Prime Minister Trudeau and, and that whole set, but uh, <laughs> it's not what the channel's all about. Uh, do you actually have a mix or an organization system for your content? And how do you break down kind of like uh, not getting yourself too kind of trapped into one particular subject or doing too many videos about flags or something like that? <laughs> yeah, people. Love I love the flag videos. I mean, uh, yes, I love the flag videos too. But <laughs> how do you not get locked into what we were just talking about where it's like, hey, it's more than, you know, just politics. I, I have more that I want to talk about. Yeah. So, I mean, at the beginning of the in the intro, you sort of said uh, you recited sort of the, the catchphrase I use on my channel banner, which is like I talk about uh, countries, culture and Canada. And I try to create videos that sort of fit under those under one of those sort of three broad sort of columns. So and I do try to mix it up like I, I, I try to be very self-aware when I'm drifting too much into one direction. Like sometimes I make too many videos about Canada in a row and then I'm kind of like, OK, I need to ratchet that back. Maybe start doing some more videos about culture uh, or videos about other countries, uh, even countries outside of North America, which I sometimes do as well. But I'm I'm I do take that seriously because I do feel like. Uh, one problem that I've often seen happen to YouTubers, and I'm sure you guys have observed this in, in many times as well, is that you know a YouTuber starts making a variety of different content on a variety of different topics, and then they make a video on one particular topic that really catches fire. And then so they start replicating that success. And then that the subsequent videos are also popular, and then they just kind of get trapped in this cycle where they're only making that one type of video on that one type of content. And then before they know it, they kind of get stuck in this, in this sort of cul-de-sac that they can often find very unsatisfying because it's like, well, you know, I did like this subject at one time. Here, I'll give you, I'll give you a I'll give you a concrete example because this is this is I won't name the YouTuber, but I remember feeling sort of sad about was it steve ramsey was it was steve ramsey i bet you it was steve <laughs> no, ramsey <laughs> it was not it was it was a guy who did it was a guy who did uh fashion uh youtube like men's fashion which is something i'm interested in I think and he I would do videos about he would do videos about outfits and all this kind of stuff and then one day he did like mystery box you know ordered a mystery box of clothes from uh ebay and then, uh, you know, the audience went nuts for that. And then so he did like another mystery box of mystery clothes from eBay. And then the audience went nuts for that as well. And then he would occasionally try to do like his old style of content, just fashion reviews, outfit tips and that sort of thing. Zero, like no one would view those. More, more mystery boxes, mystery boxes, mystery boxes. And then so like the channel is just kind of stuck in this, like I said, just kind of stuck in this cul-de-sac of 
only making this one type of very niche, very specific content that is clearly, you know, not what this creator got into the business to do. And I'm very afraid of that ever happening to me. Like, I would never want to wake up one day and then just be like, I'm just the flag guy. And if I try to talk about anything else, the audience won't uh, be receptive to it. So instead, what I've tried to do is just tried to build a brand, I suppose, that's based around myself and my way of communicating and my way of analyzing things to the point where I would hope that my audience is like primarily interested in, in JJ and interested in JJ's analysis and commentary on a wide variety of topics to the point where they would trust me, like even if they don't think the topic is maybe that interesting at first, that, but they have enough loyalty to me that they would trust me to handle it well and create some engaging content based around that. And when I think of uh, content creators that I really like and I admire, I have the same sort of relationship with them. It's like, I'm primarily loyal to you, the creator, and I trust you to make engaging content on a broad variety of topics, as opposed to just being in this very narrow transactional relationship where it's like mystery boxes are nothing. If you're not giving me that, I have no time for you because I'm only there. As a viewer, it's far more interesting to follow a channel like yours where I don't know exactly what to expect next, but I know what the quality of that content is going to be like. And I know that it's going to engage me throughout the entire video, which is because I think I found your channel from your, you had a video on minimalist caricatures. I don't know oh, yes. how, why it's, thank you, YouTube, it showed up in my <laughs> stream. And it, I, I watched it and I thought how fascinating this is that you can you know do a caricature of somebody. Charlie Chaplin would be an, an instance of one of those with just a few lines. People know it's Charlie Chaplin. And from that video, all of a sudden, your other videos are getting suggested. And I started watching those, which led to your flag videos. JJ is a vexillologist. I only recently learned that word. Is that right? Is that, is that right? I, I, I actually, on my channel, I, I use the phrase flag spurt, which I think is more flag, flag I like that better. That's <laughs> awesome. Uh, what does the breakdown of a video look like for you? How does it go from just an idea to you uploading a video onto the internet? So I have a pretty rigid sort of weekly schedule. So... Um, I upload every Saturday morning, so that's kind of like the set uh, calibration point. And then sort of by Sunday, I'm already sort of, you know, throughout the week, I'm always kind of thinking of ideas in the background. But, you know, certainly by Sunday, I'm pretty committed to a topic. And then by Monday, I work on the script if I haven't already started working on the script in the background. Uh, but basically, the script has to be done by Monday, at least. And then I film on Tuesday. Filming is like by far the thing I hate the most doing. So that's kind of like the most painful day of the week. And then on Wednesday, I write my column for the Washington Post. And I actually have a, uh, a, a young fellow in Toronto who I outsource part of the editing to. Um, what I do is that I, I do a million takes of every line. Like, I am just so bad. Like, this is why I hate filming, right? Like, I, I constantly flub my own lines. I, so I script it, and then I'm reading from the teleprompter. But I'm constantly stumbling over my lines, and it's just, it's, I do so many takes of every single line that you see in my video. And at some point, it's just like, I, and then when I go, when I used to go to edit it, I would just get so hung up on it. It's like, is that take better than this take? And it just drove me nuts. So I outsourced that responsibility to some other person. And he goes through it and he extracts all of the best takes and then smushes them all together for me. And uh, he does that on Wednesday in the background while I'm working on my column. So it's a good sort of distribution of labor in that way. On Thursday, he sends it to me. And then all day Thursday, all day Friday, I do the actual editing. So I add the, oh. the visuals and the sound effects and all of that kind of stuff. And then, yeah, That's hopefully it's... an interesting um, way of editing, yeah, to have to just have somebody just to find out the, find the good footage of you talking. I'm surprised that you struggle with the 
reading as much coming from a TV background where I presume you were reading. Although if you were a commentator, you may not have been reading from a teleprompter. No, because it's like this sort of thing. Like I'm very in my element about like sort of spontaneous conversation on any sort of topic. Like that's what I was sort of trained to do. But like I'm not an actor, right? Like and I feel like in some ways YouTube is in some some ways sort of more geared towards sort of like the actor type because it is much more about, well, at least a certain type. I mean, some people are very spontaneous on YouTube, but in terms of the kind of content that I want to do, reading a script, like that's not something that I have great skill or, or background in. So it is, it is, it's challenging for me. I assume that that was an important thing because you were talking about such fact, ba- you're sharing so much information that you really want to be certain that you don't mm-hmm. get the words lost in the nuance of the way that you communicate them. We find we do that with cleaning videos, even though it's very simple, it's best to write it down and just read those directions as opposed to just like off the cuff, try to, however, with all of that being said, do you like the thought of uh, coming up with an idea a few days before you actually need to shoot it? Or do you like being well-scheduled and knowing what you're doing well in advance? Um, so like I, I have, you know, an, an app in my phone where I sort of have a list of topics I theoretically want to do and at some point in the future. But I actually, I suppose like the column writing business has trained me well for this kind of thing. Because, you know, when you're writing a column, uh, a weekly column, you kind of can't think too far in, in advance because you don't really know what's going to be in the news that week. And so you, you are kind of a little bit more sort of spontaneous. And I kind of feel like my mind is just kind of frozen in that uh, practice. And so when I'm making videos, it's the same way. Even though theoretically I have lots of ideas I want to get along to, it's usually just through the process of working on one video that something provokes me to uh, think about what I want to do for the following week. And so it becomes just this kind of chain reaction kind of stuff. So I I don't think about it too far in advance. Like even right now when I'm talking to you, like I don't know what my next week video is going to be. Something will occur to me naturally as, you know, column ideas occur to me naturally through the course of going about my life and working on, on the videos that I'm working on right now. But yeah, I'm not, I'm not, and this is sort of part of my disposition as a person. I'm just very bad at long term planning, good at sort of short term week to week. But yeah, I don't know. By the way, congratulations on the success of your shorts. Those things are killing oh. it. Oh, thank you. I love, I love shorts. I know they're Don't very you, I, I do too. I love doing them. I know. I, at first, people didn't care much for them when I started posting, but I, I, I just doubled down and now they like them and I love doing them. It's a lot of fun. There is something, you know, again, it, it's sort of like, it's like column writing in a, in a way. Like when you write a, a, a column you have to deal with a word count, right? Right. So you, and, and, and you like, this is a thing that young writers often struggle with. And you see this a lot in like college newspapers or blogs uh, to the extent that those still exist, right? It's like uh, young people often, it's like, well, every thought I have is, is you know, worth expressing. And if it takes me 3,000 words to like write about like, you know, uh, who should win the election, like that's how long it's going to take me to do it. And then when you work for a newspaper, they have a very hard limit. They say like, you can write 750 words, no more, because it, you know, back in the day, it, wouldn't literally fit on the page. And that's a, a very, uh, that kind of discipline, I think, forces you to be much more uh, economical in your in your words, much more sort of hopefully eloquent and to the point. And, you know, it's just, I think it's a very useful practice. And I think that there's a similar sort of phenomenon that's happening on YouTube right now, particularly in sort of the like pseudo intellectual commentary, political philosophy YouTube, where people just make these agonizingly long videos. It's like an oh, hour. They're getting or more. longer, aren't they? You know, and it's just, it's like, that's, 
it's like more is not always better, right? And the thing about um, shorts is that they remind me in some ways of, of like writing a column because like I have with a short, I've now sort of figured this out through trial and error. It takes me about 170 words is the most I can sort of cram into, into a short. But I love that challenge. Like I love the challenge. Can I make a point in 170 words? Can I explain a concept in 170 words? And then you think about the visuals, which obviously add a great deal to it as well. But that kind of discipline I think is, is, very, is very good, is very healthy. It stimulates me creating intellectually and I think more people should give it a try even people who think that like shorts are, are too frivolous like it's too much like TikTok. it's like no think about it in a little bit more think of it as a challenge that you have to try to meet that is so interesting you say that because we were just having this conversation last week with a guest that we haven't actually posted his uh, podcast yet but I see those as the exact same challenge. I try to limit myself to 150 words. Maybe I don't speak quite as fast as you do. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's to me, that's an incredible, fun challenge to just try to whittle down one specific topic, in my case, a woodworking tip or a trick or something interesting in 150 words. And to just get that out, it's very satisfying. Yeah, Absolutely. And I, I mean, I would do it if I would do it like regardless of what the limitation was. Like if you if YouTube came out tomorrow and said like we've got this new thing, YouTube black and whites, you can only make black and white videos. Like <laughs> that would be equally sort of engaging to me. Yeah, I, I do think yeah. limitation is limitation is is a real sort of font of of creativity. I want YouTube black and whites now. That's a great <laughs> idea. <laughs> so simple. Yeah. Uh, talk about thecanadianguide.com because during oh, yeah. my research, I, clearly I came across all of your wonderful social media <laughs> platforms, but I came across this wonderful website. And even as a Canadian, I learned so much. How did that come about and what was the, what was the drive behind that? That's, I suppose, one of my oldest creative projects. I actually started making that when I was in high school. Um, wow. I would uh, talk to, you know, international people online and, you know, they'd be very interested in, in Canada. And uh, I wanted, like, could I make, like, a good sort of reference guide that I could just send them to? It's like, if you want to learn some basic stuff about Canada, you know, read this. And I, I've, I was always interested when I was younger in, like, travel guides and textbooks. And I'm still very interested in sort of, like, you know, clear educational resources. Clear communication, I think, is, like, one of the biggest sort of themes of, of what I've devoted my professional life to. And I wanted to make, a, a, a like, a clean, clear, simple guide to Canada in I started doing it, like I said, in high school, and I've since been working on it for years and years and years. And the version that you see online today is sort of the, uh, I don't know, the the culmination of, of years of work. I, you know, I hired a very expensive graphic uh, designer to make a really elegant layout for the website. I updated all the time. I was just updating it this morning with the uh, information on our new governor general. But I, I think that, you know, clear, good nonfiction writing, uh, nonfiction resources, it was something that the internet used to be all about. Like people used to make good websites about topics, you know, amateur people would make websites. I'm sure you can probably remember that there was good websites about woodworking and, and, and stuff like that back in the day. But now, you know, the internet is a very different place. And it's sort of like uh, the analogy I liked is that somebody sort of said that we now kind of live in the internet of with Wikipedia as kind of the Walmart, you know, like it's the one stop <laughs> shop. It's put all That's the small businesses, you know, like all the small businesses, the amateur websites are now out of business. 
business. Nobody really has an incentive to compete with Wikipedia. It's just this kind of behemoth that has drowned out everything else. I personally really do not like Wikipedia. I never read it. I never actually have installed parental blocking software on my computer, so I can't visit it if I wanted to. So I don't use it for my videos. And, uh, and, and I wanted to create in some ways like a, a, an online reference website about Canada that could provide information, just basic sort of facts about Canadian civics, you know, the parliamentary system and, you know, different Canadian foods and the different flags and all this kind of stuff. But in a way that, that was an alternative to Wikipedia and was perhaps um, had some advantages that Wikipedia didn't have. You know, perhaps the writing was a little bit more... Uh, clear and concise and you know and some pictures maybe some pictures, pictures. And some, some design and maybe yeah. a menu which helped organize the information as opposed to random links in an article i'm with you on that and i love the uh, analogy of wikipedia kind of being a walmart and the reason why i even brought up the website is because i was so impressed that it is it is just as informative as i'm sure the wikipedia pages about canada are but it's presented in such a much more digestible fashion that makes it and it did. I, I started my first web design company in 1998. So I remember the days of building niche websites, just niche websites. And that's where everybody used to go. But you're right, YouTube. Now, the YouTube channel, I think, took over the niche website. Now everybody like, you know, figures out how to fix their flat tire by watching a YouTube video as opposed to yeah. going to a how-to website. Yeah. No, that's, that's, that's a fair point. Let me ask you both a question about Canada. All right. Since you guys are obviously the experts on Canada, what if you had to pick one, what do you think is the one biggest misconception people from outside of Canada have about Canada? I think, and this is sort of this is the sort of the great thesis that I've devoted a lot of my uh, my public commentary life to, is I think that Canadians and Americans are not different. Like I think that we are basically the same people. I think that we have a sort of shared continental civilization, and I think that people on both sides of the border are in a fair bit of denial about that basic reality. I think that you know a lot of Canadian nationalism has been defined by an attempt to define an identity for this country defined strictly in opposition to America through often, I think, crude and distasteful anti-Americanism, anti-American stereotypes and, and judgment and that sort of thing. And that's something that I've always been really opposed to. And I have, like I said, like I feel like through my columns, my commentary, even my YouTube channel, like I'm really against that conception of Canada. I think that Canada and America are the two most similar countries in the world. And I think that that's a great virtue for Canada. And I think that we should be proud in how much we are like Americans, not... Uh, focus obsessively on the ways that we are different and not sort of lie to the rest of the world too and sort of play up uh, differences that I think are often quite marginal in the, uh, in the contrast of the, the vastly more uh, numerous and significant sames that we share. You're on the spot, Chad. Oh man, I think, <laughs> I think the whole thought about Canadians being this incredibly polite group of people who are <laughs> well-mannered and nice and super everything, it's just such a broad stereotype that when you run into an asshole Canadian, you're like, oh, wait, yeah, that's right. We're not all nice. We don't always <laughs> apologize to each other and whatnot. And it comes from a place, it, it seems weird that that's kind of like our biggest identity. And not that it's right or wrong. It's just like, that sucks. The biggest thing that we're known for is just we're nice people. <laughs> but you see, like that, that is unto itself, though, simply an outgrowth of a certain sort of anti-Americanism, right? Because yes. like more polite, what does that mean? More polite than who? Like all of these sort of stereotypes about Canadians being a certain way as a people always right. have an, an implicit 
unlike those dirty Americans, right? Right. Like that's always the unspoken sort of second half of any conception of Canadian identity. And I just think that that's, that's terrible. Like I think that, uh, you know, we all, you know, I, I, sometimes I get a little utopian about this, but you know, we're all people, we all live on the same earth. We all have to sort of get along with one another. And I don't think that if, if, uh, if Canadians, you know, cannot model sort of a responsible uh, cohabitation with their next door neighbors, the people that, you know, for all intents and purposes, we're culturally indistinguishable from, then what hope is there for anyone else in the world? You know, what right do we have to go around the world and tell people to, you know, stop their civil wars and stop feuding and fighting if we cannot even conceptualize an identity with our own neighbors that is based on something other than just hate and stereotypes. So that's something I, I do believe very strongly. And it's hard to be a really nice, humble Canadian when a lot of Canadians have such unspoken, that was really well worded, unspoken hatred or just like disdain towards America and Americans and just like that culture. And that ends up being the culture itself because you dislike something else, like that's now what you stand Define for. Define yourself based on what you're not. Exactly. Yeah. And it's exactly. the, I've heard some Americans refer to Canada as just basically America light. You know, it's like, well, it is America, but it's not really that, you know. And so it's, it, I think Americans have a way of dismissing Canada just as equal, equally, although I think Canada is the new Hollywood. <laughs> well, there's, there, there definitely, like, there is elements of that. Like, there is sort of stereotyping. And as somebody that's sort of been in, in sort of conservative spaces and, and dealt with sort of conservative Americans, like, I, I know that there is kind of like this stereotype that Canada is this sort of like left-wing crackpot country and like, you know, everything's <laughs> nuts up here and the <laughs> socialists have really had their run of the place. And yeah, obviously, like, that's, that's false. But I think it's also false, too. And I, I deal with this actually a lot uh, with uh, my own audience because, like, my audience is primarily Americans that are interested in Canada. I've actually yeah. been rejected by advertisers for not having a large enough Canadian audience, which is kind of remarkable. <laughs> oh, it's just but, so funny. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but, but part of the thing, too, is that there are a lot of Americans, and, you know, I think well-motivated, that want Canada to be more different than it is, right? This is actually something that you even read about in, in tour guides uh, written for Americans. It's like they sort of say, well, you know, be aware it's going to be pretty much like what you're used to back home. Like, don't expect, like, people, I think Americans want, you know, they want the world to be an exciting and dynamic and interesting place. And I think that sometimes Americans get a little bit upset at, you know, the so-called Americanization of the world, you know, where everybody's sort of drinking the same soda pops and watching the same movies and this sort of thing. But, you know, that's that's the triumph of American success, the triumph of American uh, culture. And, and uh, Canada has been more, even more so uh, subsumed by that than any other country in the world, just because, you know, we've always had an incredibly porous border. Families have always lived on both sides of the border, come and gone, not thought much of it. You know, people move across the border for work opportunities and all sorts of different things. And frankly, I think that YouTube has been a great equalizer of that as well. You see so many YouTubers uh, who are Canadian and yet do not present in an ostentatiously Canadian way, because to most normal Canadians, it doesn't occur to them to present in that way. It's really only this kind of like, insecure kind of like very heavily politicized people that I think put this kind of anti-American Canadianism at the front of their personal identity and personal brand. And I frankly think that the fact that, you know, I've written about this in the post as well, like the fact that YouTube has been such a tremendous sort of success for Canadians, uh, I think in some ways kind of reveals the kind of the big, the big lie about sort of Canadian nationalism, which is that you know, the Canadians can only be successful within Canada if they talk about, like, ex particularly Canadian topics to a Canadian audience. It's right. It's like, no, Canadians can actually be tremendously international uh, superstars because of our ability to talk about broadly accessible topics that uh, are interesting not only to Americans, but the world at large. Let me follow that up by asking you, what's your favorite thing about being a Canadian? 
my favorite thing about being a Canadian, well, I mean, this is a wonderful country. It's a wonderful free country. I mean, I love the freedom that I enjoy as a Canadian. I'm, I'm incredibly grateful for it. You know, my sister lived for many years in the Middle East. And I often thought about that. Like my sister lived in a part of the world where uh, you just could not be the kind of person that I am. So I'm openly gay. I'm a person that's made my life criticizing the government. You know, I sort of speak my mind freely to a mass audience through mass media. These are tremendous, tremendous freedoms that so many people around the world just do not have. And I will always be like eternally grateful that I won one of life's great lotteries to be born in this country and be able to make, you know, a living for myself, being my authentic self and, and just uh, doing what I love to do. So it, it's an incredible blessing. And I, I, you sort of said at the beginning that, uh, you know, I have this sort of spiel in my about uh, part of my YouTube uh, channel where I say that life is about living life with with the right mix of, of gratitude. And I think you can be irreverent about your country. I think you can be critical of your country, but you should always be very grateful when you live in a wonderful free country like this to uh, to all, never lose lose sight of what a what a tremendous uh, blessing you have. You, t uh, you reference a quote from, I think it was Douglas Copeland, and he talks about how uh, you had a continent before and then you, you, you split it up into countries. Yeah. And you have Canada and you have U.S. And how little thought was put into that. And how yes. Could you please explain a little bit of the backstory about how Canada and the U.S. kind of like drew that line? Uh, well, I mean, it, it's just a completely arbitrary colonial border. I mean, anybody that looks, uh, you know, I've got a map of Canada right beside me right now. I'm just looking at it. And it's like, you know, you have a sort of natural border in the east sort of based around the Great Lakes and, and some of that. But then, like, for the vast majority of the Canadian border, it's just this big, like, ruler line that was cleaved across the continent with no regard for geography or settlement or anything like that. And it was just a colonial border that was just negotiated by the British and the Americans in, in, the, 19th century, in the 19th century. It was just kind of like, you know, well, we want to maintain peaceful relations between the British Empire and the United States of America. And therefore, like, there was negotiations and there was talks about it. And they were just kind of, like, settled on this line, the 49th parallel. And it's like, so be it. It's no different than, than many of the arbitrary colonial borders that you see drawn in, in Africa or the Middle East. And uh, I think we should be just as critical of it. You know, before, you know, the, I mean, certainly, obviously, if we go back far enough, you know, the indigenous people didn't have this border. It's and none of the sort of indigenous uh, tribes or nations are divided by it. But also, even once settlement did come, I mean, we, we sort of lose track of this is just how people kind of just settled kind of broadly across the continent. And they didn't respect this line because it's an imaginary line. It doesn't exist. It didn't, uh, it didn't define culture. It didn't define families. It didn't define anything. It was just a kind of imaginary thing that some colonial bureaucrats drew. And I think it's important that we be, we be critical of that and that we re-examine it with the same sort of, uh, you know, second guessing that I think we examine a lot of sort of colonially, colonially imposed things. I mean, the, the sort of cliche that sort of more contrarian people like myself will often say is that, you know, you think of like, I live here in Vancouver, I have far more in common with somebody who lives in Seattle than I do with somebody who lives over in Toronto or Newfoundland or to say nothing of Quebec or Montreal. So, you know, and I think that most Canadians and most Americans, like if sort of confronted, would say the same sort of thing, right? Like as a guy from San Francisco, you probably have much more in common with other people in, in British Columbia than you do with, you know, someone in rural Alabama, right? So it's these ideas that this, this arbitrary colonial ruler line cleaving the continent in, in twain is somehow like the, the thing that we should use to sort of orient our sense of identity and culture and, and place, I think is just completely, is completely wrong. 
Let's talk about a couple of topics you've brought up on your channel. First of all, I want to talk about your video on the kind of the fight over the pride flag uh, symbol. I've lived in San Francisco for over 30 years and it's very commonly seen everywhere, but it's only recently that we're seeing this pull from different entities kind of wanting to take control over what I learned from your video, which I had never thought about before, is that the pride flag is a folk icon. It's like Santa Claus. It's basically public domain. Anybody mm -hmm. can use this. And that I would be a little bit upset when I'd see corporations using the pride flag to sell products. But then after watching your video, I started thinking about it differently that in a way, this is sort of a good thing that the, the flag has become such a common it's become normalized and to see corporations using that in a way is a sign of progress. Is yeah. that what I get from that? That's, that's basically sort of my take. I mean, I yeah. feel, and the part of the reason why I made that video was because I feel like the, the, the dominant take, the sort of easy take that I think a lot of people offer, you know, somewhat sort of thoughtlessly is this idea that like the pride flag has been corporatized and all of these corporations are, slapping it on their logos, you know, every June and trying to make a quick buck from the gays and this sort of thing. And like, fair enough, there's, there's, I suppose, some substance to that critique. But I, the, the point that I wanted to make was the point that I thought is rarely made publicly, which is that sort of like, particularly like as a gay man myself, it's like, it's nice to be able to take a step back and say like, this is actually something kind of heroic. It's something tremendously impressive and a real sign of, of progress that now you can have every random bank and cookie <laughs> store and, you know, you know, Goldman Sachs and all the rest of these, like that they put the, uh, that now it is almost more controversial to not signal your support for the LGBT right. community than it is to do it. And like being from a generation where I grew up at a time when like, when I was in high school, like nobody was openly gay and like it was still seen as this very sort of taboo and kind of avant-garde thing that only those people did and like growing up I was very and I talked about this in the video like I was alienated from the pride flag because I saw it as a symbol of like those people and like you know sort of insecure teenage JJ didn't want to be one of those people he wanted to be normal he wanted to sort of conform with the mainstream sort of bourgeois middle-class white Canadian culture that he was born into and so now that the fact that you're using the pride uh, flag in such a tremendous diversity of, of circumstances not only like you know in progressive circles but in in these kind of like bourgeois sort of uh, places like you know you go to Walmart and you see the pride flag right we underestimate just what a normalizing effect that has on people that uh, perhaps are a little bit less progressive perhaps a little bit less sort of activist in their kind of sensibilities but need to sort of feel included just as much as anyone else so I am uh, my contrarian take is that uh, pride flags on corporate logos are good actually I like that you approach topics from a a lot of topics from a skeptical point of view and not a cynical point of view. And did you ever watch Penn and Teller's bullshit? Did you ever watch that show? Yeah, yeah. It, I'm, I'm it, sort of broadly some of, it, yeah. some of what you do reminds me. In fact, you even had a topic that they covered on that one time, which was about this kind of the fraud of recycling and how oh, we're yes. just basically creating a bunch of trash by throwing it in the blue bin. Yeah, but you feel good doing it. You feel you so do. good doing it. You right? really yes. do. Because now you don't need to worry about it anymore. Now it's yes. in the blue bin. Yeah, it just reminded me of their videos. But yeah, tell tell people about that the whole myth of recycling. And is there any way we can get out of this thing? I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, can we it's, fix it? 
Well, I mean, like, the, really I want to only... do good. I want to put the stuff in the blue bin. And I do. And I take it out to the street every day. And then I find out, well, it's just basically all going to be burned up. Yeah, I mean, the the problem is is that, you know, I mean, this is the problem with, with climate change and environmental issues in general, is that they require a very significant lifestyle change that most of us are just not prepared to do. We just kind of are looking for shortcuts. So really, like, the only way that you can be a good sort of recycler, so to speak, is by literally recycling uh, objects in your own life, right? So if you reuse the same tote bag, you know, for the next 30 years, like that's productive recycling. If you buy a nice glass bottle and reuse that for drinking your water for the next 30 years, like that's productive recycling. What's not productive recycling is to just buy like, you know, plastic bottles and then just heave them in a tub because we know, and you know, the video sort of deconstructs this in great detail, is that what happens is that we mostly just ship those things over to China or to other countries in Asia and say, hey, you people make stuff. I'm sure you can figure out something to do with this plastic, right? But in most cases, they can't because the plastic is so low quality. Um, you know, and the process of melting it down obviously degrades the quality of it even further. But, you know, it's also all covered with, you know, glue and food scraps. And, you know, the <laughs> amount of effort that it takes to even, like, render this stuff uh, clean is unto itself a tremendous... Uh, you know, time investment, which and time is money, but then also the resources that it requires to, you know, ship things and, you know, operate the machines that clean and melt and so on and so forth. Like there's, there's often no net benefit at all to this process. And it's, it's, uh, when you but fill it is. up that recycle bin, there is literally people at a conveyor belt who have to go through and hand pick the good stuff. Yeah, <laughs> so it's absolutely. just so labor intensive yeah. to deal with all of this. Yes, absolutely. And and then there's always like a desire to sort of cut corners because of how expensive this process is, which is why we just sort of outsource it all to uh, to Asian countries. And increasingly, Asian countries don't even want to play along. Like in, no. in the Philippines and China, yeah. they have said mm -hmm. quite explicitly, like, stop sending us your garbage. Like, it's not our job to kind of like alleviate your <laughs> guilt, right? Like to somehow <laughs> sort of do the penance that way. There's a people have made the argument as well that like a lot of this has also just been a kind of just very sophisticated PR campaign that was sort of established by the plastics companies, right? Like at a time when they were getting increasingly negative PR for creating wasteful products, you know, they kind of dreamed up this idea, you know, that, oh, we stamped this little circular arrow. That means that you can recycle it. Therefore, don't feel guilty. Buy as much plastic as you want. It's all going to a good place. So I don't know. It's that, that video of mine is, is, is quite popular. And, and I'm glad you brought it up because I think that's an example of kind of the breadth of topics that I can cover, like, right. you know, talking about flag design one day and recycling policy the next and the mandela effect i remember a few oh. years ago when this was all the rage everybody was saying "Ooh, there's the mandela effect we're we're, oh we're seeing things differently than we used to see them and they always would bring up the same examples the berenstain bears yes, and yes. you know the different logos oh did you notice that the i don't know what logo has it changed it's not the same as i remember it and it's just faulty memory is all it is yes thoroughly yes. debunked people still believe in the Mandela effect. No, it's 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 so it's so ludicrous and it's 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 troublesome because it is it is mostly like sort of young people that seem to buy into this and and this is sort of like this is a dark and sort of cynical side of of YouTube. Uh, you know, I remember you were talking with the 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 Australian woman who did the entertainment for the children uh, some uh, time ago. Sure. Sh Shannon, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, that was that was a great episode, right? And you talked a little bit about the kind of the Elsa Gate kind of sort of thing, oh, right? Where like people yeah. make horrible content for kids, but there's also horrible content for like preteens and like young, young, young sort of teenagers and stuff. And I view like some of the Mandela effect as basically just being like the older version of that kind of Elsa Gate type of content, right? Where it's like people that know better push like crackpot conspiracy theories or like stuff about ghosts and mysteries and you know this kind of stuff where it's like hey kids isn't this cool and mysterious and weird and it like puts in like a kind of seed of like very destructive conspiratorial thinking into sort of young people that are still just trying to grasp their understanding of the adult world and stuff like Mandela Effect and you know I talk about this in my video on it and I show like other channels that you know use Mandela Effect in order to get clicks and say to like these young people it's like hey like could there be alternative universes could like we be living in a simulation has the you know has our universe collided with a parallel one and like this kind of rubbish like it's not a good thing to be filling young people's heads with like as a poet particularly when there's an Occam's razor explanation which is just you kind of misremembered this very right. trivial thing right you were yeah. misremembered how to spell a children's book character that you know you probably weren't paying that close attention to in the first place because those stories are mostly boring and some adult was reading it to you in the library or whatever <laughs> right like that's the explanation you decided to put this one on a pedestal and make this one be the important thing which is proof for an alternative universe and like, you know, other shifty. And you're right. I've noticed a lot of children. I have a three-year-old and she loves going through YouTube. And there's a lot of children's content directed directly at children, which is very, like you say, ghosts, monster, uh, like yes. just a whole uh, unnecessary added element to their stories and to their, to their videos and their entertainment. And, mm -hmm. and you're right. It does seem slightly disingenuous. Even the name itself, the Mandela effect, is kind of... If you kind of buy into that, you're kind of admitting that you're basically haven't been paying attention throughout your life. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's 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 I, I talk a bit about that in the video, too. Right. Because like that's the that's the origin of it. Right. Yeah. Like the origin is that some people thought Nelson Mandela had died when he hadn't. Right. right? And that and I talk about that in the video, like that is an extraordinarily ignorant uh, opinion to have yeah, ever to just held. admit that is stupid. Yes, because Mandela was like <laughs> Mandela was one of the great statesmen of the 20th century. Like, like he was all over the place all the time. He was in even when he was like still under oppression in in South Africa. Like he was a very important political figure. So if you thought that he was dead, that just shows that you were like completely sort of checked out of of you know reality and that's not, and I just I guess some people are just too proud to admit that they were that dumb so it's just like no actually I think the world just kind of revolved around me in some way and that there must have been a parallel universe in which I was right because that makes more sense there yeah. has to be another explanation yeah, exactly yeah, yeah one of your videos was about how society has changed since your childhood or anybody's childhood how you see well, a lot of us think well obviously the technology has changed since we were kids and but society changing is what is really mm -hmm. interesting. And it got me thinking about this whole concept of generations. And we seem to be obsessed with what generation a person is from <laughs> and how we define what age. Are you a millennial? Are you a Gen X? Yes. Are you Gen Y? Are you a Zoomer, yeah. a Boomer? All yeah. these different things, which is such a new concept that literally a little over maybe 150 years ago, there was no concept of that because... Basically, you lived out your life the exact same way your parents lived out their yes. life. There wasn't a whole lot of difference there. Yes, yes. And there's a lot of really interesting sort of uh, theories. I did two videos on this topic, one in which I sort of asked uh, 
I sometimes do this is I do a sort of sequel video in which I ask the audience to, uh, you know, share their insights. And then I read some of the best comments and sort of explore them in, in the follow up video. And uh, people have like a lot of uh, interesting theories or evidence about where this kind of concept of these clearly delineated generations come from. You know, a lot of it has to do with, I think, the Second World War. And that was such a transformative experience for, you know, the generation, I think, of the of, boomers. Our, our, when you think of that as like the first that we started labeling as a generation. Yeah, because it would be sort of like the generation of like our grandparents, right, who were who were in the war, presumably, or, you know, our grandmothers who, you know, built the munitions and that sort of thing. Like that was such a transformative experience for this broad, you know, age range, because, of course, people of a certain age had to fight in the war or, or and, you know, there was an exclusionary aspect to it that was very tightly defined. And then those people come back and then they all have kids at the same time. And, you know, sort of like that creates a very clear break already is that you sort of have the experience of the war generation versus the post-war generation. And then things like technology and, and pop culture kind of exploded after the war. You know, you had all of these one one comment that I thought was very insightful was that sort of like the post-war generation, the boomer generation was really the first generation that ever experienced like the concept of of a distinct culture for themselves, like young people music, like rock and roll and that mm -hmm. kind of thing. Like there was mm -hmm. never that kind of thing previously, like everybody just kind of listened to the same music. And, you know, American Western society was much more static in that kind of way. Whereas then you kind of had a, a youth culture that was defined by sharply different um, cultural norms, such as music and dress and clothing and stuff, which was in part uh, sort of encouraged by the growth of like the wealth of American society post-war and that sort of thing. But the problem is that, uh, you know, to some extent, we're all kind of forever living in the boomers world, right? So that very particular boomer experience of the delineation between their generation and the war generation of their parents is now kind of being artificially extended to describe every relationship between kids and their parents for all time, right? That we all kind of have to, you know, Gen Xers, millennials, Zoomers, that we all kind of have to interact with other generations the way that the boomers interact right. with their parents. And, and there's not that whole lot of difference anymore. It's no, just I mean, getting to be where the parents don't look or sound a lot different than their kids, really. And it's, I think it creates like some kind of like weird insecurities as well, you know, like because sometimes I kind of feel like, oh, am I acting too young? Am I too interested <laughs> yeah. in young people things? Like, am I supposed to be di more different from the Zoomers yeah. and more different yeah. from the, the Boomers and this kind of thing? It's, it's not, I, I think it can be pretty destructive. I mean, it's, uh, people should be perhaps a little bit less self-conscious about, I think categorization in general can be a problematic thing. We love to categorize speaking. everything. Everything has to put into a bucket, like as soon as something fits in a bucket, then it makes more sense and I can move on from and it. And then you and work you work backwards from it, right? It's, it's very much like, yes. you know, Canadians and Americans, right? It's like the second you sort of put yourself into one of these columns, then you start to like, you, you have to rationalize the existence of that column. And then so you go through life living in this kind of like hypersensitive way with your antenna up, looking for any little subtle difference that you can then gl glom onto and say, aha, I am such a typical, you know, Canadian or boomer right. or, you know, right. ENTP if you're into that sort of thing or cancer or, you know, Capricorn or, you know, this kind of stuff, right? It's, it's all... Uh I don't know. I mean, there, there's some there's some use to it. I mean, I think it's useful to have orientation points to understand your identity. But, you know, people and particularly on YouTube, people go far too far, I think, pandering to some of this kind of stuff. This is the most Canadian question I have. OK, I saved it deliberately till last. Oh, my. I've been a Canadian all my life. Um, I've lived in Ontario all of my life and all of my I don't like where this is going. I know oh, what you're going to ask me. You're going you're gonna to say, why do I have such a weird accent, right? 
No, well, oh. it's not even just your accent because I'm completely used to your accent. It's yeah. literally just that you are the only Canadian I know that says a boot. You well, but I'm not though. Can- like most Canadians I, I, do. Sorry. The, yes, most Canadian. This they, is this is this is interesting. Is it an Ontario gonna, British <laughs> Columbia thing? Because that's. I'm I mean, stand back. I think. <laughs> I think it is. I think. It, I mean. I obviously it, it varies from region to region, and there are tremendous regional accent variations. And I'm a product of the sort of people that raised me in the kind of milieu I grew up in. But at the same time, like, I think that a lot of Canadians are in tremendous denial about the degree that they do have distinctive accents and that their distinctive accent is often recognizable by the way that we pronounce certain words with ooze. And actually, I can give you a good example of this. I was just last yesterday, I was listening to uh, your podcast interview with the uh, the young man who does the documentaries about the abandoned buildings. I can't remember oh, right. what his yeah. name is. Jake. Yeah. And so, like, I'd never heard of this guy before, but as I was listening to him as I was walking around, it's like, oh, he says, like, a boot and house and a ruined and, like, these kind of words and this kind of ooey sort of sound. It's like, oh, he must be a Canadian. And true enough, he was a Canadian, right? And the fact that I get so much sort of bullying and teasing for, for the way that sort of I have this kind of, like, you know, strong way of pronouncing those kind of sounds, it's, it's just kind of made me, I think, a lot more sensitive to the fact that this is actually a very mainstream thing. But because, and I suppose this is in some ways, like, a, a, a sort of great Canadian... Uh, hypocrisy is that on the one hand like Canadians want to be so different than Americans and like nothing the same we're so different but then when you point out a difference like this like that we have slightly different speech patterns or slightly different accents we don't do accents, that we do not we talk exactly the same as Americans yeah. you can't tell us apart whatsoever but I find that like a, a lot of Canadians sort of say like oh your accent is weird or fake or I've never heard anybody talk like that before and then the Americans are all just kind of like yeah that tracks you know that's how Canadians talk it doesn't seem remarkable to me at all it's because we American- all think of South Park well, I mean, but Americans Americans are very good at, at understanding accents, I think, in a way that Canadians are not, because Americans are, I mean, America has a great deal of accents, but Americans, I think, are just also more sensitive and more sort of self-aware and even more celebratory. Like, people can, Ameri- it often shocks me, like, an American can be like, oh, you're from Ohio, right? Not to me, but, you know, they're talking to somebody, and they're like, oh, yeah, I can kind of detect sort of like you have an Ohio accent, or you have like a Pittsburgh accent, and, you know, you have a Chicago accent, and, you know, obviously, or even like within the South, like, there's all these funny videos on YouTube about people like doing, like, here's how Alabama people talk versus how South Carolina people talk, and whereas I think that there's kind of this idea in Canada, and in part because things like South Park have made such a big joke about sort of Canadian accents, there's a lot of sort of insecurity about this kind of thing. And an and idea, and I've heard Canadians sort of say this, it's like, you know, no, Canadians just like speak a, like a very pure, clean English. Like we have like no noticeable accent at all. We speak like newscasters. We're just so, so eloquent and so unremarkable in, in, our, in our tone. That newscaster <laughs> dialogue, there's actually, I think that might actually be the name for it or something, but it's a taught uh, accent. Yeah, I guess. it is. All it newscasters is. do that. And, it's it's yeah, hilarious and, when you have people uh, like, you know, who know, like, you know, somebody like me who's been in sort of like the journalism space, when you see like your friends working on television and they, they're de- doing this like delivery that is so affected and it sounds like every other newscaster and yeah, yeah. And it's just like that's not how you talk but it's like yeah you train to to enunciate in a very particular way in part because that way it doesn't seem regional and thus you can syndicate that kind of content to news stations all over right. the continent yeah and because the newscasters themselves would be moving around from station to station they didn't want to bring their own accent to wherever they might be and potentially mess with the people the locals there yeah absolutely but i think that it's good that we celebrate these differences in accents because and you mentioned in your video about accents the canadian accents is that we are losing a lot of this and a lot of it is just becoming this general like 
North American accent, I guess. Yeah, there, there is some insecurity about that. And it's, it's kind of funny, like people in Newfoundland, for instance, you know, small province in eastern Canada, they at one time had very strong accents, almost sort of like Irish kind of sounding. And uh, I remember once watching a broadcast on the CBC where they were sort of interviewing some Newfoundland elders and they were saying, oh, you know, it's it's too bad. Like the kids today, they don't don't have the good accents anymore. And you see this a lot in, in England as well, like in Great Britain, they have tremendous accent uh divergence, you know, just from Liverpool to Nottingham or whatever, <laughs> these crazy places. And uh, like British people sometimes get defensive about that, like that the decline of accents is seen as a loss of, of their culture in some sort of substantial way, because I suppose it does sort of suggest that we're living in a kind of more globalized world where uh, people just kind of come and go and people consume media like YouTube, which is very international, very sort of broadly accessible. And the sort of variables that you're exposed to in your life that perhaps left me talking the way I do and left you guys talking the way that you do are sort of somewhat less present and people are being socialized in a different way and that sort of results in a different type of person. Well, we're going to have to have you come back on to talk more in depth about so many different topics. I love a guest like you that has such a diverse range of topics that we can really explore. We didn't even get into the 13 fakey country, countries that are in the Olympics right now. <laughs> oh, that's well, I'd love to come back. This was this was fantastic. I'm oh, that's Let great. me just say like I'm I'm a really le like legitimate big fan of your show. I think you guys are doing a real useful service and I think that uh, hearing all of these different YouTubers tell their stories has just been has been fascinating and it's made me learn a lot. And so, yeah, full endorsement to this. Anyone who's listening to this just because they wanted to hear me talk should go back to the catalog and listen to a bunch of old episodes because it's, it's really I really, really appreciate stuff. that. That's one of the hardest things for us is just discovery, just to get people to really understand what the show is about. You know, when we started, we didn't know what it was about and then eventually we found our footing with it. But it's hard because a lot of times people will find that one guest that they know and they want to listen to that interview and then it's trying to sell them well you might also be interested in hearing about people that you don't know right yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. no and it says it says something about your skills as an interviewer that you're sort of able to make stories that you wouldn't think would be uh, as interesting to an outsider so well, thank you. I really appreciate that. And I appreciate you being on our show. If anybody listening to this would like to check out JJ's channel, I hope you do. It's JJ McCullough. I won't spell that out for you. You can look because we will have a link down in the description. I mean, it's not an unusual spelling of McCullough, right? It's the normal spelling of McCullough, but I think a I'm, lot of people might stumble over it a little bit. I'm thinking of just going to JJ because it's much easier. Probably, yeah. Just go to JJ, like the flag guy or something like that. And I'll bet you YouTube will find it. I often, I often tell people just do JJ Canada because then I'll Oh, there you work. go. Yeah, yeah, Canada. That'll work. And thank you for listening to this episode of Chad and Steve Have a Podcast. You could really help us out by sharing this uh, with somebody you know, maybe on your social media. We'd like to get the word out a little bit more. We're coming up on our 50th episode really soon, Chad. Wow. We're going to... You know, we're going to have a very special episode. We've already planned it. Mm -hmm. No guests, just me and you, reflecting and on 50 episodes of awesomeness. Going back to the old days, yeah. Oh, boy. Thanks for listening, everybody.